0: This is the old folk song, An Canadien Erong, written by Antoine Girin Lajoie and sung by Ian and Sylvia in much more modern times than their. Vanguard album entitled Ian and Sylvia. I should tell you that I knew Ian Tyson because we shared a flight from Calgary to Vancouver and we chatted about her mutual friend Andy Russell. And later, when I read from my first book at Harbourfront, Sylvia was reading from her book, so you might say she was opening for me. Okay, that introduced this podcast by me, Doug Gibson, about Canada's greatest storytellers from 1867 to 2017. It's the second podcast in the series and deals with the decade from 1870 to 1880. This decade saw Canada expand with Manitoba and what were called the Northwest Territories joining the Young Dominion in 1870 and british columbia joining one year later bribed by the promise of a transcontinental railway being built that's an interesting link with one of our chosen authors here charles gordon who wrote as ralph connor one of ralph connor's most famous books is the man from glengarry that's glengarry ontario right beside the quebec border near montreal in the novel, the young hero Ranald Macdonald graduates from his work as a logger in the shanties of the Ottawa Valley to head west in time to become a leader in the new lumber industry in B.C. In due course, he comes east as part of a delegation from B.C. to meet with Sir John a. in Ottawa. Here's an excerpt. "'May I ask where you were born?' said Sir John. "'In Glencarry,' said Ranald, with a touch of pride in his voice. "'Ah! I'm afraid your people are not great admirers of my government, "'and perhaps you, Mr Macdonald, share in the opinion of your county. "'I have no opinion in regard to Dominion politics. "'I am for British Columbia.' "'Well, Mr Macdonald,' said Sir John, rising, "'that is right, and you ought to have your road.' "'Do I understand you to say that the government "'will begin to build the road at once?' said Ronald. "'Ah,' smiled Sir John, "'I see you want something definite. "'I've come two thousand miles to get it. "'The people that sent me will be content with nothing else.' "'Tis a serious time with us, and I believe with the whole of the Dominion.' "'Mr. MacDonald,' said Sir John, becoming suddenly grave, "'believe me, it is more serious than you know, but you trust me in this matter.' "'Will the road be begun this year?' said Ronald. "'All I can say today, Mr. MacDonald,' said Sir John earnestly, "'is this.' That if I can bring it about, the building of the road will be started at once. Then, Sir John, said "Ranald, you may depend that British Columbia will be grateful to you. And the interview was over. We'll deal with Ralph Connor more fully in a later decade, when this minister from Winnipeg was by far Canada's most successful novelist, his books selling in the millions. Now, let's turn to Canadian art in the 1870s. This marks the end of the Krieghoff era. For decades, Cornelius Krieghoff had been busy painting his lively scenes of traditional Quebec rural life with happy locals spilling out of the pub after a long night, while in the barn... An over-enthusiastic drinker is sometimes wretchedly throwing up. Another Kriegoff scene might be of a habitant in his snowy farmyard directing two rich Montreal hunters on the best route home with their shot moose, while his amazed children pause in filling their wooden bucket from the hole chopped in the ice or a scene of a sled-load of cheering, stand-up troublemakers speeding past the toll-gate, refusing to pay. In one painting, Krieghoff shows us a historically important view of the river beneath Quebec City, crammed with squared timber rafts floated down from the Ottawa Valley. Soon that timber will be hauled aboard ships, For the voyage across the Atlantic, where the pine wood from Canada will build 19th century London's homes, offices, and warehouses. And the returning ships, rather than coming back empty, will provide cheap and unhealthy passage below decks for desperate immigrants. Over the years, these starving, crowded families have included displaced Highland Scots and Famine and Irish, all the way to the victims of the latest failed revolution or commercial disaster in Europe that produced new tides of refugees for Canada. Krieghoff's paintings give us a very vivid picture of old Quebec life outside the towns. By contrast, the photographs of William Notman show us the leaders of Montreal society, often in artfully arranged crowd scenes composed of dozens of individual photos, slyly fitted together. Or, more usually, we see the Montreal merchant classes posing in well-brushed family groups on their very best behaviour. Don't move. Sit still. Many of them, in English-speaking Montreal like Notman himself, were Scots, and from the days of the fur trade on, Montreal and its square mile leading to Westmount was heavily Scottish, with houses on Sherbrooke Street that would seem right at home in Edinburgh. When Prince Edward Island joined Canada in 1873, Quebec City and Montreal were the great Quebec cities. But in Ontario, the national capital of Ottawa was still a young lumber town, much smaller than the older centres of Toronto and Kingston, and even young up-and-comers like London and Hamilton. And Niagara-on-the-Lake was still an important place, remembering its glory days as the gateway receiving the loyalist refugees from the new rebellious country to the south when they came flooding in across the border. One example is the Gage family, in Roberts and Davies' 1991 novel, which I had the honour to edit, entitled "Murther and Walking Spirits. Their story is based on the adventures of Davies' own ancestors. After they have lost their father, Major Gage, in battle with the Yankees, the exhausted Loyalist family members escaped from New York by canoe up the Hudson, all the way to the Niagara frontier. In the Atlantic parts of British North America, of course, most of the Loyalists arrived by boat in Navy vessels much larger than canoes. In the early days, Niagara-on-the-Lake attracted Loyalists from all over, even from inside what is now Canada. Christopher Moore's fine book, The Loyalists, has Edward Winslow in New Brunswick complaining that what he called Niagara Fever was drawing his people away to Upper Canada. The main town in that part of Canada West was originally named Butlersburg in honour of the butlers, rangers, loyalist troops who were based there. Then it was named Newark, before it became the capital of Upper Canada, and was finally named Niagara-on-the-Lake, as nature surely intended. This was the home of the author for this decade, William Kirby, who lived from 1807 until 1906, An amazing stretch of time when you think about it. Born in England, Kirby was brought by his family to Ohio in 1832, then came to Canada in 1839. He settled in Niagara-on-the-Lake as a tanner and was soon tanning the skins of political opponents who didn't share his United Empire loyalist Tory principles. He became the fiery editor of the local paper, The Niagara Mail, and was heavily involved in politics, sometimes writing under the revealing nom de plume Britannicus. When you visit Niagara-on-the-Lake, as I did recently, attracted by the Shaw Festival, you're in for an enchanting time wandering through the historic streets. If you go down to where the Niagara River Still a little dizzy after it swooped down the falls, just a few miles to the south, flows gently into Lake Ontario. You can see the American Fort right opposite. If you then head west along the lakefront, you'll soon come to an attractive wooden white house built in 1818. 1818. A sign outside this well-preserved private frame house facing the lake will tell you that William Kirby lived there from 1847 until 1906. He is remembered with more than just local reverence because he wrote one of the best Canadian historical novels, The Golden Dog. And like Philippe Joseph Aubert de Gaspé, Kirby chose the conquest of Quebec As the theme of his novel. Significantly, the people of Quebec are his heroes. This is a spectacular Canadian example of a gothic novel. What does that mean? Well, if it were a play or a movie, it would seem that everyone was overacting with dramatic speeches delivered by actors putting the back of their hands to their foreheads and declaiming their despairing or passionate speeches against midnight scenes haunted by hooting owls. The Golden Dog, which is not a dog book, though as a publisher I found that dog books always do well, is mostly set in 1748. At that time in faraway Paris, Madame de Pompadour was the all-powerful mistress of the king, and in Quebec City young gallants were fighting sword jewels to the death over beautiful maidens, who were likely to enter the convent when their hearts were broken. Politically, Kirby has great fun with the debauchery of François Bigot, the corrupt but royal intendant of New France. Bigot, a real historical figure, was busy starving the province and its army, while his home palace was full of silver cups, quote, overturned amid pools of wine that ran down upon the velvet carpet. Great stuff. You'll find beautiful women, high romance, gallant soldiers, and an evil poisoner, la Corriveau who has inherited a variety of fatal poisons from the Borgias themselves. La Corriveau, you'll be glad to hear, was a real historical figure. Her crimes were so sensational that in 1763, after she was found guilty of the murder of her husband, marie Joseph Corriveau was hanged, and then her corpse was gibbeted on display "'in an iron cage at Point Livy. "'This was a punishment unknown during the French regime, "'and it made her a figure of horrible legend. "'In The Golden Dog, the gothic climax, "'is a midnight scene in a lonely tower "'where poisonous flowers do their deadly work. "'Just listen. "'She pressed the glowing flowers to her lips,' With passionate kisses, breathes once or twice their mortal poison. Suddenly, throwing back her head, with her dark eyes fixed on vacancy, and holding the fatal bouquet fast in her hands, fell stone dead at the feet of La Corriveau. They don't write scenes like that any more. The Golden Dog ends very powerfully flashing forward to a 1777 scene in the Quebec City fortress. In Kirby's words, "'The noblest names and lineage of New France "'had come forward as loyal subjects of England's crown "'to defend Canada against Benedict Arnold's invading Americans. "'The noblest names include the de Gaspés. "'The good guys win, of course.' This music, which takes us out, is Rule Britannia by the central band of the Royal Legion with Captain David Cole in the recording entitled Rule Britannia. <laughs>